You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Kansas City Allied Printing Trades Council, and Pipefitters Local 533. Established in 1893, the Allied Printing Trades label is one of the oldest union labels in existence. For all your political printing needs or to show you are labor-friendly, patronize the Kansas City Allied Union Shop. For a list of KC shops, please contact Kansas City Allied President David Phillips at 816-518-7473 or our own CWA Local 6360 President Tom Gepkin, who's sitting right across from me, at 816-896-6396. Buy union, support union. And Pipefitters Local 533, being the best in the industry, has earned our craftsmanship, brotherhood, training, and job safety make the difference. Building and buying union create better wages, and living standards for all working families. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, AFL-CIO Secretary-Treasurer Fred Redman and retired AFSCME and Civil Rights Leader Bill Lucy on Labor and Martin Luther King. Then, we'll ask Missouri's freshman legislator, Jamie Johnson, about the new dress code for women and other threatening bills. In the news, 13 Missouri clergymen and women sue the state for violating the separation of church and state with their abortion bans. And KCMLK event advocates for reparations. Our feature at the end of the show is Know Your Rights with Michael Amish of Blake and Ulig. He explains your changing religious rights at work. And now for the news.
And now for the news from our side, January 19, 2002. Ahead of Sunday's 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the National Women's Law Center announced today, along with 13 members of the clergy, that they are suing the state of Missouri for unconstitutionally imposing one narrow religious doctrine on all Missouri residents and violating the separation of church and state with their abortion bans. Here are some highlights from the press conference. We'll start with UCC Reverend Tracy Blackman. An establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise. Thomas Jefferson himself, in his 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, said the American people built a, quote, wall of separation between the church and the state, end quote. And my friends, without this separation, there is neither religious freedom nor just law. This is why I stand with my colleagues today to bring this suit against a state that I love. The Missouri Constitution ensures a strict separation of church and state. Our elected officials have violated their oath to uphold that Constitution by weaponizing religious beliefs to deny abortion access in a state where studies prove these actions are not the will of the majority of the people. I am not here to debate the morality of abortion with anyone. I'm here to defend women and birthing people's right not to have to, and to expose the hypocrisy of legislators who hide behind a feigned pro-life agenda while serving a pro-death penalty state. That was UCC Minister Tracy Blockman, and next is retired United Methodist Minister Barbara Pfeiffer, who is also a state rep from St. Louis County. I am Barbara Pfeiffer. I am a pastor. I am a state representative. I'm a woman. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. I'm also a person who has experienced difficulties in pregnancy. I experienced a missed abortion when I was 23 years old, and the state of Missouri couldn't figure out what to do with a dead fetus that I carried for five weeks. I've known for decades that the state is not capable of making healthcare decisions about my body. Missouri Constitution prohibits the state from either establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise of religious faith. Missouri abortion bans violate this important principle. The plain language of the most recent statute banning abortions at, at different levels of pregnancy or, or dates of pregnancy begins with the statement, as was mentioned, recently, in recognition that Almighty God is the author of life. Well, I personally 
would agree with that. But a constitution is not the place to make that kind of theological statement. I do know from my perch in the chamber of the House of Representatives, where, by the way, I transgressed, I have to tell you, I wore a cardigan last week. That may be the most transgressive thing I ever do, folks. But, but I know that from cardigans to conception, the state of Missouri is increasingly saying women don't count. And that is wrong. It is not the purview of the state of Missouri either to arbitrate between the richly diverse beliefs of our people or to impose one religious belief on all of us. Missouri bans on abortion rest firmly on one religious belief. And that is actually a religious belief that is contrary to my faith. It's contrary to my experience. It is contrary to my rational understanding of the world. The rights and needs of a fully sentient, autonomous human being must take precedence over an embryo or a fetus. At a very, very personal level, I learned at age 23 that the state of Missouri cared more about a dead fetus than a living woman. And if I had died, I would never have had children. So it's a completely irrational point of view as well. Missouri bans on abortion use religious beliefs to deny basic human rights to people who are able to get pregnant. This law disenfranchises people from the fundamental tenets of democracy. It denies our civil rights. It puts our lives at risk. And we know that Missouri has one of the worst maternal mortality rates in the country. It endangers our freedom of conscience. It threatens our emotional, spiritual, and financial health. The life, the liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of every woman in Missouri is jeopardized by these bans, and they must be overturned. Faith leaders are asking the circuit court for the city of St. Louis to issue a permanent injunction striking down the abortion bans. The lawsuit demonstrates how HB 126 and earlier statutes and regulations restricting abortion violate three sections of the Missouri Constitution that prohibit state officials from compelling people to support or participate in any religious activities or beliefs, favoring any particular religion, or using public money to support religion. Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, Sacramento, California, and St. Paul, Minnesota have in common with Mayor Quentin Lucas. They are all members of MORE, Mayors Organized for Reparations and Equity, which holds that the racial inequality in America was cemented and institutionalized for generations when restitution was denied to survivors of chattel slavery and human bondage, and that inequity was officially sanctioned in both the public and private sectors. 
Despite attempts to whitewash this history by politicians, the wide-ranging consequences of that history of inhumanity and injustice are well documented and continue to weigh heavily in the lives of African-American descendants of slaves. Today, black Americans are the most segregated group of people in America and are five times as likely to live in high poverty neighborhoods as white Americans. On Monday, there was a packed meeting at the Linwood Metropolitan Missionary Baptist Church where the city council, well, city council member Melissa Robinson and five other panelists laid out a plan to begin discussion about reparations in Kansas City. Attendees were encouraged to get involved in the Reparations Commission, which will make recommendations to the Kansas City City Council. Melissa Robinson wrote, Reparations is an issue whose time has come. We strongly encourage you to stand with us and support this important legislation. Sponsors of the coalition include the NAACP, Black United Front, Real Justice, and Urban League of Kansas City, as well as the Kansas City Southern Christian Leadership Conference. For more information, go to Facebook page and search on KC Reparations Coalition. Tonight's news was read by Chris Mann, and I am Tom Gebkin. And I'm Judy Ansel, and I want to thank Chris Garlock <clears throat> from the Labor Radio Podcast Network for sharing with us two interviews. The first you're going to hear is with Fred Redman, who is the Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO. He comes from the Steelworkers Union and is the first black senior executive in the AFL-CIO. This is the time of the year, the Dr. King weekend, the weekend leading up to the holiday, where the labor movement, since the inception of the holiday, we pause. We pause this weekend, recognizing the fact that Dr. King, you know, as everybody knows, he took his last breath as Memphis, in Memphis, Tennessee, standing up for workers. And the contribution that he made uh, to, you know, to our country, to our world, to our society. So what we do every year is, we uh, take time out. We honor and celebrate the work of Dr. King, the legacy that he left behind. Uh, so this is a time for the labor movement with our partners in the civil rights movement. We come together. We strengthen our longstanding bond and relationship so that we can continue to be a force for progress in America. And, um, you know, this year's conference, we decided on the theme of claiming our power, protecting our democracy, because, you know, when we talk about claiming our power, we're still standing. Mm -hmm. You know, all the predictions was out going into November, how, uh, you know, we're going to see this rare tsunami. We didn't see it. And, uh, you know, we're still standing. You know, the manufacturing sector in this country, where we've seen millions of jobs offshore, you know, to, to, to Mexico with, you know, in the South, we got right to work, you know, states where, you know, uh, 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 people uh, are being persuaded not to join unions, but we're still standing. So on this Dr. King Day, what we want to do is, you know, we need to remind our members and we need to reclaim our power. 
that the labor movement is still a solid voice for working people throughout this country. And we talk about protecting our democracy. You know, two years ago on uh, January the 6th, you know, we seen the attack on the transfer of power, one of the most fundamental tenets of the Constitution. We saw that at a, you know, we, we saw that on full display. Uh, and we just recently saw uh, the last couple of days the same situation uh, in Brazil. Uh, voting rights are in attack. You know, states across the country, they pass egregious legislation to limit uh, things like mail-in voting, uh, you know, voting on weekends, weekend voting. Uh, you know, we got these crazy voter ID laws. And um, then the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the elimination of preclearance. And then, you know, we see corporations and billionaire CEOs, they're making moves to try to take away our right to collectively bargain and gain a voice on the job through a union. Uh, we're looking at uh, tremendous backlogs at the NLRB because of the backlog where workers have came to the conclusion, particularly young workers, that the way we address these issues is collectively and they're joining unions and we see uh, union-busting law firms, you know, is using every trick in the book to delay progress and to the to delay, um, you know, having people come to the bargaining table and bargain collectively. So when we say protecting our democracy, you know, we believe there's no force better than the labor movement coming together with our friends in the civil rights community in order to take a stand on behalf of working people around this country. So we say claiming our power, we're still standing. We still a powerful force to deal with and then protecting our democracy. It's like the old saying, if not us, then who? So we're going to rededicate ourselves this weekend. We're going to celebrate our victories. We're going to analyze the work that we've done as a labor movement through the midterm elections. And then we're gonna talk about the work that must be done going into 2024. And we also are going to really, really define this issue of protecting our democracy and the leading role that the labor movement needs to play to make sure that all people in this country, you know, enjoy the fruits of their labor and all people can participate in the right to citizenship and be treated as, you know, as fairly as they should. And, you know, look, the only thing that working people want is the opportunity to share in the wealth that they create every day and take a vacation every now and then, support their family, send their kids to school, and uh, one day retire with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And all of this is being threatened because we see policies that work for the few and not the um, totality of society throughout this country. I think a lot of times with Dr. King these days, um, yeah because we're so far from from when he was a, among us uh that that people forget about the the pitched battles that were going on at the time mm -hmm. and 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 you you reference this and, and he had a very strong connection with the labor movement and and those battles and, and in fact as as you're referring to you know died in memphis fighting for the sanitation workers and i i just want to get some of your thoughts about the connection between those battles you know, those many years ago and, and the battles today? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, we went through, you know, coming out of slavery, we went through the Revolutionary War, we went through the period of Reconstruction, 
And, um, you know, we went through reconstruction and, you know, we saw, uh, you know, black folks in, in the South, particularly, you know, claiming their freedom after war to kill thousands of people. But then we saw, uh, so we went through a period of reconstruction, but then that wasn't good enough for folks. So we went through a period of Jim Crow. And then we had to go through a second reconstruction, okay, in the 60s. We had to fight, and this is where Dr. King really led the march for voting rights, for civil rights. And we passed historic legislation, and I refer to that as the second reconstruction. It was the second birth of standing up for freedom and standing up for rights. And I submit that we're in a period of time now where we're looking at the need to go through a third reconstruction. Hmm. When we see the things that we accomplished through the leadership of Dr. King and other civil rights icons in the 60s, and we see them being attacked today, such as voting rights. When we see the attack on voting rights and the reluctance to pass uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which merely you know, gives back what folks have fought for in the 60s with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. When we see things like, you know, when we see people fighting for things like critical race theory, which, you know, people are saying that an accurate analysis of history is not uh, fair for our children. And, you know, when we see, you know, these sort of things that's taking place in our country, like we saw on January the 6th, where, you know, people literally came out and, you know, the old saying is, you know, we got anything to be thankful for. We got, you know, we should be thankful that those folks weren't people of color, or we would have probably seen another scenario. So when we see these things taking place, and, you know, then we look at uh, the debacle that happened this week with uh, trying to elect a speak, Speaker of the House and the issues that they're talking about uh, in terms of their priorities, you know, talking about, you know, reforming Medicaid, Social Security, Medicare, you know, and, and it's, it's like we're almost going backwards. You know, we got immigration policy in this country that's merely broken. You know, we got folks who was born in this country that don't know anything but the United States, but, you know, the reluctance to give them a legitimate path to citizenship. And when we see the attacks on our friends in the LGBTQ plus community and the onslaught of uh, recent waves of violence against uh, the LGBTQ community, then, you know, we have some serious problems. And I submit that these problems go to the very foundation of the attack on our democracy by extreme right-wing neoliberals that is on the that, that is trying to reshape America. And the labor movement is, you know, it's going to be at the forefront of that fight to protect the rights of all working people in this country and to make sure that those people who have been disenfranchised, disinherited, and despised, you know, that we also, you know, stand up for them. So this is about democracy, and I submit that we are on the verge of a of a third reconstruction. This is a period of time where we really need to analyze our democracy, and we need to commit ourselves to fight to protect that democracy and to make the necessary changes to include everybody. Absolutely. Fred Redmond, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me.
Next, we will hear the optimistic voice of William Lucy. Thanks to the Labor Heritage Foundation Executive Director, Elise Bryant, for this interview with Bill Lucy, it was presented at, at the Labor Heritage Foundation's January 15, 2023, Martin Luther King, Gonna Take Us All Ball, held in Silver Spring, Maryland. Lucy, born in Memphis in 1933, is an American trade union leader who served as secretary treasurer of the American Federation, Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, which is AFSME, from 1972 to 2010. During the 1960s, AFSME chapters around the country organized marches and strikes to secure better wages and working conditions. These actions were often met with police violence. During this period, many AFSME members and leaders were beaten, tear-gassed, and jailed. Lucy was jailed by police several times in his capacity as a union leader and activist. In 1968, at the age of 35, Lucy worked on the historic Memphis sanitation workers' strike. He coined the famous slogan, I am a man, that became the rallying call for the Memphis strikers. After Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination during the Memphis sanitation workers strike, Lucy helped maintain the Labor Civil Rights Community Coalition that sealed the workers' eventual victory and became the model used throughout the nation. In 1972, Lucy co-founded the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists to ensure that African Americans voice, had a voice in labor. In 1984, Lucy joined the Free South African Movement, which was a grassroots campaign that sparked widespread opposition in South Africa. Lucy believed, as Dr. King did, that labor was one of the most powerful forces for creating a better life for all. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Yes, How long? Not, Not, long. Long. Not long. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Brother Bill Lucy. Uh, let me uh, first say uh, thank you, uh, Ms. Bryant, for the opportunity to spend a few moments uh, with you talking about things of interest to both of us. Uh, and, and let me say hello uh, to all the activists, the, the, the trade unionists, the, the, just those who have gathered uh, tonight to uh, just uh, exchange some ideas and share some thoughts and uh, just uh, refresh ourselves on the work that we've got to do. Well, Dr. King was one of the world's great uh, both thinkers, uh, doers, uh, and one who led people uh, into a, a righteous path uh, and at the same time spent considerable time helping people think through uh, how to achieve a better life. Uh, I was in Memphis at the time of the uh, 1968 sanitation strike uh, when Dr. King came uh, to share his commitment with the 
1,300 men who had gone on strike. Uh, my role was to try and uh, help uh, uh, think through what we had to do, how we were going to try and do it, and make sure that the uh, men who were struggling for a better way of life uh, knew that the union was there to help them uh, uh, try and achieve that better way of life. Uh, the 1968 uh, sanitation strike was one of the great struggles of working men and particularly black working men uh, to change a system that for years and years had kept them uh, without the possibility of changing their way of life. Uh, Dr. King uh, saw this situation and if we remember Dr. King was in the midst of organizing what was then called the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which is a real effort to put a face in a, in a and the appearance on poverty as, as we knew it. And what Dr. King did was, was begin to organize and mobilize across the country, bringing just thousands and thousands of people from their cities, counties, states, bringing them to Washington, D.C. so that Congress could take a look at what poverty looks like. And uh, it was one of the great struggles that... Uh, uh, I had the opportunity to just play a role in, and the sanitation strike was one of the great struggles of working men uh, to improve the quality of their lives uh, by struggling to change the system. Well, I say to the young people, that, that as, as dismal as the situation may look, uh, it's been harder before, and uh, we're able to do things that we never thought. Uh, we could do, uh, but we've, we've got to get committed to doing it. Uh, as bad as times may be, uh, they have been worse. Uh, we have made considerable changes simply by making a decision to struggle, and to struggle to bring about change, and I, we see it every single day. I mean, uh, a few years ago, nobody had thought that a Barack Obama would be president of the United States of America. Two terms. Uh, nobody thought uh, that, 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 that we would have a, a Kamala Harris or we would have uh, uh, leaders who believed in our issue and was prepared to struggle for them. So, I mean, it's, as difficult as it may be, change is possible. I, I I would hope uh, that young people uh, would would recommit or commit more themselves to uh, bringing about change. It's it's not an impossible uh, thing. Uh, what we have to do is not give up, uh, not give in, and not uh, assume that nothing can change. Uh, if we look. At, 50, 60 years ago, we would never have given a thought to the kinds of things that we see today, uh, where we see in uh, business, where young black folks are uh, uh, building uh, businesses, uh, they are part of the economic mainstream, and as difficult as times may be, uh, the future holds great possibilities for being even better. 
Dr. King once said that uh, religion and labor are two of the most powerful uh, issues in our society. And I, I truly believe that. Uh, There's little that cannot be done uh, if we put our minds to working with it in the context of our faith. And secondly, recognizing that organized labor is a machinery that has changed the course of history, uh, both uh, for, for uh, uh, wages and benefits, but changed it in the context of justice and fairness. And I think that uh, uh, those who have the way, the will, and the commitment to fight for a, a better way of life uh, recognize that the trade union movement is, is that, that, that vehicle. Well, I, I'm, I'm just so hopeful that uh, uh, we not look at our current political environment and assume that all is lost. All is not lost. Uh, uh, as I said before, we have managed uh, to pull uh, and develop, as older people used to say, a way out of no way. And what we're seeing now is our younger people are understanding the political process and the relevance of it. Uh, and what they're doing is learning more and more about how do we take politics, let me say, and the political process and make public policy that's beneficial to our interests. And we can't really ask for any more than that. We ask uh, and should ask, okay, give us an opportunity to play the game the way it's been played for years and years and years. And our young folks now are doing just that. We've got young people who are being elected to local government, city councils, county governments, uh, congressional seats, senatorial seats. Uh, I, 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 a friend of, uh, of mine and a friend of ours, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is now the principal leader of a major political party in the Congress. Uh, we've never had that before. We've had political leaders before, but we've never had them at the point where policy uh, is made by them on behalf of a major, major uh, piece of the political life of this nation. And I, I, I'm just you know, uh, thrilled by the possibilities of what we can do in the future. Good night. Thank you guys for coming. And we're looking forward to uh, not just the, the, the beginning of this new year, but what we will do as we move through this new year. The Labor Heritage Foundation gives thanks and deep gratitude to Brother Lucy for joining us this evening. This Friday on Understanding Israel-Palestine, Richard Falk, Professor of International Law and former UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories, talks about what the media is getting wrong about the new extremist government in Israel and his concern for what could lie ahead for the Palestinian people. That's Understanding Israel-Palestine this Friday at 9.30 a.m. KKFI is the Kansas City area's independent, non-commercial community radio station. We seek to stimulate, educate, and entertain our audience to reflect the diversity of the local and world community and to provide a channel for individuals and groups, issues and music that have been overlooked, suppressed, or underrepresented by other media. 
And that is the KKFI mission statement. Thank you for listening. Good evening. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum on 90.1 KKFI. I'm your host, Christine Disney. And for the last part of our show, we will be talking to Missouri District 12's uh, Representative Jesse Johnson about the current events in Missouri State Legislature and how they will affect Missouri's working class. Representative Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the invite. Oh, absolutely. I mean, have it, you're local, it's you're for the people, so we're glad to have you here. And first of all, I know a lot of people, it's been national news, are wondering and asking about what happened recently, current events, Missouri State Legislature, about basically um, women's professional dress and what they can wear in yeah. the house. And uh, what's your take on it and what did you see? Um, so we're calling it Sweatergate. Um, and basically uh, a representative of the uh, Republican caucus decided to introduce an amendment amendment to our house package, our house rules package to adjust the dress code specifically for women um, restricting us to blazers or knit blazers, um, as would be the case. Currently, or what was the rule, was that women had to wear a second covering, which could have been a blazer or a sweater um, over their you know, dress, or even if it was a long sleeve dress or um, you know, some type of jacket or, or a second layer covering. Um, they wanted to clarify that language and restrict it to jackets to make us quote unquote equal to the men. And, you know, my take was generally, you know, why do we have to make the accommodation to be, you know, for equality? Why does women always have to make the adjustment? Um, because I think there's a lot of men who will look nice in a really good cardigan. So, um, so why not add to their uh, dress code wording versus taking away from ours? Um, expand theirs rather than restrict ours. Um, it was a, a really big waste of time. We talked about this for over an hour when there were so many more things that we as Democrats wanted to talk about. Um, we were introducing amendments that would give people more access to the building um, allow Missourians to speak in committee hearings, local people who had traveled to the to the city to speak in committee hearings, allow them to speak before lobbyists who may have out-of-town interests or owners who may have out-of-town interests, um, and just, you know, open up virtual meetings. Basically rules that would um, make the house work better for the people of Missouri, and there was no debate on those, there was no conversation. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. It's an unfortunate situation that that is what was decided that they would focus on for our first, you know, couple of hours as legislators. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I know people who've been, they see the, the little um, clips on the news, see it through TikTok. And how long does this discussion last on appropriate wear for women? It was almost, we talked about this for almost an hour. And this, the whole, the entire session for the day was about an hour and a half. And we talked about that for almost an hour. So it was a good portion of our very short, you know, and the first couple of weeks of legislature, 
are very short days because we don't yet have committees. We don't have yet have bills. Bills are working their way through the system to make it to the floor. So the, the first few days are pretty short anyway. Um, but this was a lot of debate over something that was so insignificant and um, not substantial. So, yeah. And there, but there's more important things out there to be discussing because there are some pretty big things happening right now. And two, if you could briefly uh, touch on them, one is mm-hmm. uh, basically the gutting of the petition initiative process yeah. and how that's going to impact um, both uh, the democracy in Missouri and the working class people. And Absolutely. also, there's a Senate bill coming up, the Parents' Rights Bill. So, could you touch yeah. base on both of those? So on the initiative petition process, um, there is some language to change the initiative petition process. There are a number of bills at last count. I want to say there's five, maybe six that um, make changes to the initiative petition process. Um, And for one, I rather, I think the initiative petition process is a great way for Missourians to decide as a collective that the legislators are not doing what we asked them to do. They're not doing what we want them to do. We saw that demonstrated with the passing of medical marijuana. We saw that demonstrated with the passing of recreational marijuana. When people, when the people of Missouri say, this is what we want, we are unable to make that happen in the legislature due to deadlocks or due to um, not having enough support from one side or the other. Um, then we are able to, then they are able to make it happen on their own, which is an incredible feat. Um, it's already a difficult process. It's already a process that, that requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of effort to get something on the, the um, ballot. It takes a lot of signatures, a lot of coordination, a lot of volunteers, um, a lot of grassroots efforts. And so to change it in any way um, I think is a huge disservice to the people of Missouri. So um, that's that's that one. And as for the Senate bill, um, the Senate bill really it gives parents um, it basically codifies rights that parents already have. Um, so it's you know the right to control your child's image um, if they're if they're on video or they're at school and, and pictures are taken. Um, which is something we already have the ability to do. It allows your child, uh, allows the parent to take their child out of a class if there's something that they don't want their child to be taught. It gives them access to curriculum, which is all things that parents already have the right to do. Um, but what it does, what I think it does, is it ties the school's hands in an instant where it could cause harm to children because one of the things that's in there is controlling your ability to, um, or having the ability to control your child's health information and your um, and the way your child is treated for specific health things, right? So if there's an accident, to me, the problem with that is if there's an accident and the school cannot get in touch with the parents, do they do nothing? If the child is having an allergic reaction, can they administer medication? Um, you know that those types of things. If if, if something happens, um, 
and they can't get in touch with a parent, are they able to bring that child to the doctor? Can they speak for that child in terms of medical care as they can do now in an emergency situation, right? So we're basically tying the hands of schools, of, of educators, of um, educational administrators who maybe would be able to intervene and in this, and in this situation would need the parent's permission or the parent's guidance on moving forward. And that scares me as a parent, that scares me because I want you to act in the best interest of my child. I know that everybody in that building has my the interest of my child at heart. Um, and so it is, to me, it's it's a slippery slope on um, allowing them to, to codify uh, rights that we already have. And, you know, there are areas in there where you know, it may be a great area and may actually cause harm to children. So I'm very concerned about that one. Yeah, and looking back, well, look at this and everything as a whole with um, what the discussion's been having over what women can wear, when the discussion should be over what's coming up. These right. both House bills and Senate bills are coming forward. There needs to be a conversation around those. Absolutely. And it said, it seemed... I don't know. I don't know the future, but it seems a little telling when somehow they spend an hour on whether uh, what's a cardigan and what's a blazer versus having this discussion. Yeah. And personally, as a teacher myself, uh, this bill coming up, this is something I already see in schools that parents yeah. do have these rights. And if parents are concerned, that's a definite conversation that you need to have uh, yeah. with the administration, your child's teacher. And that's part of communication, something that does not yeah. need to be built in as a bill or as a law. law. Right, right. I, I have three children myself. My oldest is 21. My youngest is 12. I've never not been able to go into the school and say, can I see the lesson plan? I've never not been able to go into the school. My oldest child was on an IEP. I had full access to the accommodations that they were offering. I had full access to the classroom. I had full access to um, her her records. Um, so so I don't understand this push to um, codify something that people already have the ability to do. Um, and I get it, but you know, it, it's at the same time. I think that it will cause problems, unanticipated, unintentional problems on the back end, because like we know, for every solution, there's another problem that. So. Yes, it, 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 perfectly. You point that out. And hopefully moving on forward, um, I don't know, we can have these conversations that we can actually talk about things that are actually going to matter for Missourians. Yep. Uh, but we're in our last about two minutes of our show. And you've had your first couple weeks in the House of Representatives. Um, tell us a little bit about how it's going and what, it, what are you looking forward for? It's been the most interesting three weeks, I think, that I've ever experienced in politics. I've volunteered for a long time, but I, I haven't experienced it from the inside out. So it's been really, um, it's been really eye-opening and, and really exciting. Um, I filed my first bill today, so I'm excited about that. Um, and, and the funny thing about it is it's a lot more calm and... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, uh, I guess, I don't know what the word is, but people get along really well in the house. 
you know, we go to each other's offices, doesn't matter, party, we talk about bills, here's the bill that I'm presenting, um, you know, here I'd like your support on it. We, we're very cordial. Cordial is a word that I'm looking for. And, and let the media tell it, you know, we're all at each other's throats. And that's really not the way it happened. So, um, so I'm excited to see what, what happens moving forward. I, I, know, I realize that that, converse, that statement might not age well, but we'll see how it goes. I'm just excited to be here and represent my community. Hey, we never know. We never know. So you know what? Let's look for a better future for Missouri. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And everyone who was just tuning on in, that was Representative Jamie Johnson from District 12 talked to us about some recent legislation in the state of Missouri. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Know Your Rights. This is Michael Amash with the law firm of Blake and Ulig. This month on Know Your Rights, we are going to talk about religion in the workplace. First up, are employers required to accommodate the religious beliefs and practices of applicants and employees? As many of you are aware, yes. The big question, though, is to what extent and what degree employers need to accommodate. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, employers are prohibited from discriminating against employees and applicants based on religion. This includes refusing to accommodate an employee's sincerely held religious beliefs or practices unless the accommodation would impose an undue hardship, meaning more than a minimal burden on the operation of the business. What constitutes such a hardship has been the subject of much legal wrangling over the decades. In 1977, the Supreme Court issued a decision in Transworld Airlines versus Hardison. In that case, Transworld Airlines, TWA, had dismissed Larry Hardison, a member of the Worldwide Church of God, who refused to work on Saturdays, which were his Sabbath. TWA stated it could not accommodate his request for a Sabbath exemption after he was tra transferred from the building where he worked the night shift to one where he would work the day shift. With the transfer, Mr. Hardison did not retain the same seniority with which he had previously made requests for Saturdays off. Writing for a split Supreme Court, Justice Byron Wright stated that TWA had made a reasonable effort to accommodate Hardison, that it was not required to violate its seniority system to make the requested accommodation, and that alternate plans constituted a, quote, undue hardship on the employer that the law did not require. The court noted that TWA had met with the employee to resolve his difficulties, but refused to pay overtime to others to cover his shifts or to bypass the seniority system which it had negotiated with the TWA employee's union through collective bargaining. The standards established by the Supreme Court in the Hardison case have stood through decades, until potentially now. Just recently, the Supreme Court announced that it will hear a case called Groff v. DeJoy, in this case, plaintiff J.L. Groff, a former postal worker, wanted to be exempted from working on Sundays because of his religious beliefs. In this case, Mr. Groff is asking the court to abandon the nearly half-century-old rule established in Transworld Airlines v. Hardison. Groff argues that the Hardison case 
imposes too strict limits on an employee's ability to seek religious accommodations from their employer. In hearing the Groff case, the Supreme Court seems poised to tilt the standard and announce a new legal rule for the workplace that would require an employer to make more accommodations and that potentially places additional burdens on non-religious employees. Cases such as Hardison and Groff are applications of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that protect an individual's religious freedom. But what about corporations? What about companies? What do, do they have religious rights? Do they have religious freedom? After all, Mitt Romney once said, corporations are people too. Now, while many of us scoffed at the sentiment expressed by then-presidential hopeful Mitt Romney, the Supreme Court has not. As many of you will recall, in 2014, the Supreme Court issued a decision in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, wherein the court allowed Hobby Lobby to block their employees' access to birth control based on the company's religious beliefs. There, Hobby Lobby objected to having health insurance plans that included birth control, a coverage guarantee under the Affordable Care Act. The court ruled against birth control access in a very close 5-4 to four decision, with the majority stating that Hobby Lobby and other closely held corporations could deny birth control coverage to their employees. The Hobby Lobby decision only applies to, quote, closely held corporations, that is, businesses that have one or few owners, and does not apply to businesses that are publicly traded or have otherwise have many stockholders. Nonetheless, millions upon millions of American workers work for these closely held corporations, and the decision in Hobby Lobby applies to them. The impact of the Supreme Court's decisions related to religion in the workplace is and will continue to be significant. These de decisions impact all workers, whether they be Christian, Muslim, Jewish, atheist, or any other belief system. For Know Your Rights, this has been Michael Amash. And now for the Heartline Labor Forum calendar. Wyandotte County Democratic Breakfast, Saturday, January 21st, 8.15 for breakfast, 9.15 for speakers. Las Islas VIP Bar and Grill, 4929 State Avenue. Speakers are Representative Jeff Pittman and Juan Luengo, Kansas Democratic Party Hispanic Caucus Chair, as well as DNC Committeeman Hank Chamberlain. WICO, Legislative Lunch and Learn, sponsored by the Voter Rights Network, January 21st, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Oak Ridge Missionary Baptist Church at the Family Life Center, 9301 Parallel Parkway. In-person or live stream, register. <clears throat> um, you can find the registration link on our calendar on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. UU Forum, the role of radical black media in the future of information with Ryan Sorrell of The Defender, Sunday, January 22nd, 9.30 a.m., Unitarian Church, 4501 Walnut, or online by going to allsoulskc.org. And webinar, Abortion Bans Violate the Separation of Church and State, Monday, January 23rd, 6.30 p.m., online. Register at, uh, again, a link that you can find on our calendar at the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. Tune in next week to the Heartland Labor Forum. 
Our show is on the recurring myth of lazy youth. We're going to have a bunch of young people defending themselves. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Scott Stanton, and stay tuned for the Thursday night special, which is stand-up, produced by the Racial Justice Initiative. Please fill out the listener survey at kkfi.org and tell us your favorite shows. to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. Strong.